This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. When you hear cage-free eggs, do you picture hens outside roaming around? Well, that's what those egg companies want you to think. Really, cage-free hens live crammed indoors. Meanwhile, Vital Farms hens are pasture-raised, on actual pastures, with plenty of grass and sunshine for healthier hens and better eggs. Vital Farms pasture-raised. Visit vitalfarms.com coupon and look for us in the black carton at the grocery store. Hey guys, it's Lainey, host of the True Crime Fan Club podcast. If you're a true crime addict like I am, then my podcast is for you. It's a podcast for the ultimate true crime enthusiast, giving you a glimpse into the life and crimes of the most demented minds. You won't want to miss an episode. everyone my name is Ali and over here is Charlie how are you I'm good how are you I'm doing good and we both have meetups next weekend which is exciting I'll be at the Bear Bar in Haymarket next Saturday night May 27 at 6 p.m and Charlie where will you be again on May 28th from 2 to 5 we'll be at Black Dog Coffee House it's in Lenexa it's 87th Street Parkway, a little west of Quivira. It's pretty easy to find, so definitely come on out. I know I'm going to have some type of goodie bag, something put together for everybody. So if you want to let us know you're coming, that would be great. Email us and just put which meetup you're coming to at insightfulpod at gmail.com. We have all the details on our Facebook page. And apparently I'm getting a Skype call at 5 a.m. from your meetup. I <laughs> yeah. won't answer it, but... <laughs> <laughs> that That is unfortunate. It would be pretty funny, but um, hopefully, hopefully it'll wake you up. <laughs> so before we start this week's case, a couple of updates on cases we did last year. Firstly, Tara Calico, the sheriff who claimed he knew what happened to her, he passed away this week. He effectively took all his supposed secrets with him. Now, Robin Warder from The Trail Went Cold, he did share a document from Reddit on our Facebook group. And in that, he the sheriff claims that his also deceased son was involved. But I haven't seen this quoted in any contemporary news article. So, look, I don't know if that's at all legit or not. And I don't know if any of this is any consolation to Chara's family they still don't have their daughter back. And secondly, HBO has just released an awesome documentary on Dee Dee and Gypsy Rose called Mummy Dead and Dearest. It pretty much has to be one of the best documentaries I've ever seen. To hear Gypsy talk about herself and what happened is mind-blowing to say the least. I don't want to spoil it for anyone who hasn't watched it yet, but I do question the honesty of what Gypsy says in the interview she doesn't strike me as being particularly genuine. I don't think she's a very reliable narrator at this point, looking back and also in some ways minimizing things. I do. I agree with you. I, It's definitely worth watching. And I think the filmmakers, in my opinion, did a good job not editorializing too much. They seem to be very unbiased in their reporting. And that is very unusual in documentaries. So this week's case, we are discussing one of the missing persons cases that has stuck with me the most. And I know I do say that a lot, but this one really is. 
This week we are talking about three missing girls from Fort Worth, Texas, and they were last seen Christmas 1974, and they've become known as the Fort Worth Three. Mary Rachel Trelika, who went by Rachel, she was 17 years old and recently married. Her husband, Thomas Trelika, who went by Tommy, he was a widower a few years older than Rachel, and he had a two-year-old son. Interestingly, Tommy had previously been engaged to Rachel's older sister, Deborah, but that apparently ended amicably and there were no hard feelings when him and Rachel later married. Deborah actually claims that the relationship wasn't all that serious and it was just one of those things. All of her friends were getting engaged, so her and Tommy did as well. To make things more awkward, Deborah and her boyfriend were in the midst of a big fight, so she was actually staying with the Trelikas at the time. If you ask Deborah and Tommy, they claimed there was nothing romantic between them and their relationship was long over and the situation wasn't uncomfortable for any of them. On the morning of December 23rd, 1974, Rachel was going on a shopping trip to buy Christmas presents in the rather glitzy at the time Semery Shopping Centre, and that's now known as Fort Worth Town Centre, and it's located in South Fort Worth. Rachel asked Deborah to come along, but Deborah was in bed and she didn't want to get up, so she declined. Along for the shopping trip was Lisa Renee Wilson, and she went by Renee, and she was 14 years old and a friend of Rachel's. Things were going great for Renee that day. Her boyfriend, Terry, had given her a promise ring that morning, and they were supposed to attend a Christmas party together that evening. Terry and his family lived across the street from Renee's grandmother's house. That's where she was staying that day before the party. Renee asked Terry to come along shopping, but he was going to a friend's house and passed on the invite. But Terry had a younger sister, Julianne Mosley, who was nine years old. Unlike Terry, shopping with Renee sounded like fun to her. She begged to go along because she was bored. She was at home alone. She and her family didn't know Rachel Trulika, and having never met her, they were understandably reluctant to let Julie tag along. But in the end, Julie's relentless begging won out. Rachel also went to her mother's house and asked her to go with them as well. At this stage, her father was struggling. He had malignant melanoma. He was dealing with blackouts, and he just couldn't be left alone for very long. And so Rachel's mother had to stay home with him. The girls headed out sometime between 10 and 12. It's reported pretty much anywhere in that time frame. They shopped at the Army-Navy store to pick up some layaway items on the way to the shopping center. This store was particularly popular for teens in the area, They happened to have those low-cut hip-hugger jeans in all the different colors, and that that was really the trend at the time. Rachel parked her and her husband's Oldsmobile on the upper level parking area by Sears department store, and they went in. Multiple witnesses reported seeing them at the mall that day. Renee was wearing a distinctive shirt, and that's what people remember, because, you know, teens in a busy mall wouldn't have really stood out. Investigators believe that they must have returned to the car at some point before they disappeared because inside the car were the Christmas gifts, including one that Rachel had just purchased for her stepson. 
Sometime between 2 and 4pm, Rachel's mother kept calling the house to see if they were home yet. As you said earlier, Charlie, Renee had that Christmas party she was going to. When she couldn't get them at home, she started calling all the stores at the shopping centre and she had the girls paged. When they couldn't be found, she called the Fort Worth Police Department, but they wouldn't come until after the shopping centre had closed. And that wasn't until 11, 11.30pm, because we're looking at extended Christmas trading here. And when they did finally go out to check, they did find the Oldsmobile. The car was left locked and abandoned, where it was parked at around 6pm that evening, and the girls, they were never seen again. And according to investigators, the only items missing from the car were three $50 bonds, and they were last seen in the glove compartments in the days before the girls went missing. But the existence of these bonds, it's heavily debated online. There is no evidence to say that they were actually in the car at the time, and they were never cashed in, so take from that what you will. But the fact that presents were found in the car, that kind of suggests to me that they got back into the car at some stage. Whether it was at the end of the shopping trip or maybe they dropped off some presents before going back and continuing shopping, we don't know. But then something strange happened. The next morning, Deborah and Tommy found a letter in the Trelika's mailbox addressed to Thomas Trelika with Rachel scribbled on the upper left corner. Tommy later reported that he believed the letter was sealed, but he can't be sure one way or the other. And the letter read... I know I'm going to catch it, but we just had to get away. We're going to Houston. See you in about a week. The car is in the Sears upper lot. Love, Rachel. The stamped postcode was blurred, so where the letter was mailed from was difficult to determine with 100% certainty. To investigators, it did look like the postcode read 76083, but the three appeared to be printed backwards... And that made them, the investigators, think that the last two numbers were printed from a stamp of some sort, most likely at the post office. Now, if it was backwards by mistake and the final two numbers were supposed to be 38 and not 83, then the letter was stamped from Eliasville, Texas, which is about two-hour drive from Fort Worth. But if it was supposed to be 88... Then the letter was stamped in Weatherford, Texas, and that's about a half-hour drive from Fort Worth. So both aren't that far from where the girls were last seen, and it is possible they could have posted the letter that day that they went missing, it then being picked up with that day's mail collection and delivered the following day to Tommy. The family didn't believe the handwriting looked like Rachel's. It was written on a piece of paper that was wider than the envelope it was sent in, which, look, I don't know it can tell you anything really. I mean, let's just say for whatever extremely strange, illogical reason, the three girls ran away together. Maybe this is the only paper Rachel could find. And the fact it was a rush job, that could be supported by the fact the paper starts in pen and then changes to pencil. Like the pen maybe ran out of ink and that's all they had there. But her family says the writing was something that looked like a child wrote it and that's not typical of how Rachel normally wrote her letters. They pointed towards the way Rachel's name was written as well and how it was written was as if she spelt her name wrong and then went back over it so it was spelt the right way. 
It was written as if the original loop for the letter L at the end of Rachel's name was short and it looked more like a lowercase e. And then it was gone back over again to make it look like a lowercase l. Now, considering Rachel was 17 and you can only assume she had been writing her name for, what, 12 or so years, you would think she would know how to spell her name by now. Also, the way she called her husband Thomas, when she never called him that, no one did. Everyone, including Rachel, called him Tommy. Now, of course, they did get handwriting experts to have a look at the letter, which didn't make the situation any clearer. The experts returned with an inconclusive result, so it could have been Rachel, but then again, it might not be Rachel. Because of this letter, investigators took that as meaning the girls left on their own volition. Deborah would later claim that her and Rachel had unhappy childhoods and that they were frightened of their father. And that supported the theory of the investigators that they did run away. Which is kind of odd because that really only applies to Rachel and not anyone else. But regardless, as far as I see it, you can really look at this letter four ways. Firstly, it was written at the shopping center by Rachel. This would make sense because Rachel would, of course, know where she parked her car and that was in the letter. But that's about all that makes sense with this scenario, because why would she refer to her husband so formally when she didn't normally do that? Why would she send the letter at all? Wouldn't it make more sense to just attach it to the windscreen of the car or leave it lying on the car seat? She had to know her family was going to be out looking for her before they even got the letter, so the car likely would have been found by them since they all knew she was going to be at the mall. And also, why Houston? I guess this isn't a deal breaker either way, but for all reports, Rachel had no ties in Houston. And if she was being forced to write the letter at the shopping center, possibly under duress, why didn't anyone see that? Another reason I don't think Rachel wrote the letter, simply because it makes no mention of Julie. Rachel and Julie hadn't met before this shopping trip, as you said earlier, Charlie, They barely knew each other, so Tommy would have little reason to call Julie's mum to see if Rachel was there. I can't imagine Rachel calmly writing to her husband to say her and her friend had run off for a week and failing to mention, oh, by the way, we brought along the neighbour girl. It seems like whoever wrote the letter was only concerned with letting Tommy know the girls left voluntary. I think the letter was primarily written to give families and police hope that the girls would be back in a week, which would give him cooling off period and avoid any serious search efforts in the meantime. So that would lead us to our second scenario is that this was written at the mall, but by the kidnapper. And for this to happen, we would be talking about some level of premeditation. The kidnapper would have had to have seen the three girls either park their car or possibly return to the car with the presents, because by the letter, he knew where they had parked. And he then would have had to have followed them into the shopping center, most likely, and followed them around. It's possible he knew at least one of them, or maybe talked to them there, or maybe even both. He knew them and he talked to them while they were there. I doubt the letter's author was related or even knew any of the girls well, because you think they would have heard Rachel call her husband exclusively by his nickname Tommy and not Thomas, because that would have avoided suspicion in the early days. 
The next scenario is that the letter was written far away from the abduction site by Rachel and then brought back to the area by the kidnapper, Tamal. This would mean the whole abduction was premeditated and Rachel was the target with the others just being collateral damage. And she was forced to write the letter under duress and maybe even possibly trying to signal she was in trouble by the irregularities of the letter. And then finally, the letter was written by the abductor away from the abduction site and then taken back to the area to Mao. Now, for this to have happened, he would have had to have asked Rachel where she parked or maybe followed them to the car at some stage and taken them from there. He would have had to have used Rachel's driver's license plus a phone book to get Tommy's name and address, which would make sense because he would have had to have been listed as Thomas in the phone book like it was written in the letter. This scenario makes me wonder if the kidnapper was visiting family, possibly in the Fort Worth area, and did this crime, and then maybe went back to Houston, and the mention of Houston in the note, it could have been the kidnapper's way of saying F you to the police. I I feel like there's a premeditation here. I do think they were unknown to him before this. Agreed. Because, again, the Thomas, the Rachel being hesitant in the spelling because there are two ways to spell Rachel and that Thomas's name isn't as far as I know in the letter it's only on the envelope correct so the letter could have been written and he then signed Rachel's name to it and then he put it in an envelope and addressed it it seemed like he almost didn't know who he was sending it to But I do think that there's a certain amount of premeditation because this letter is involved and it came so quickly. It's not as though two days later or a day later, even he thought, oh, I need to fake a letter or I need to do something. It was ready to go the night they were taken to have gotten to the Trilika home in time. So yes, premeditated. No, probably not someone well known to them at all. Not sure if one or all three of them were targets, I I really am unsure on that. It just makes me think that Rachel was the target because the letter was written with her name on it. I do think the letter was written and possibly mailed as well before the disappearance, and the kidnapper just wasn't expecting Julie to be there because why would he? It wasn't like she regularly went out with the other girls. From my understanding, police considered the girls' runaways for several days after they disappeared, and they basically ignored the family's concerns otherwise. So I would doubt that at the time the police performed any sort of initial search at the shopping centre other than perhaps a quick walk through to see if the girls had been seen. But then a week passes by and there is no sign of Rachel, Renee or Julie. Investigators gathered up several leads as they started looking into that this is probably an abduction situation. But other conflicting reports from the day started coming out. One witness claimed she saw three girls matching the description of Rachel, Renee, and Julie. They were being, quote-unquote, hustled into a pickup truck by an unidentified man the day they vanished. Another witness came forward who claimed to have seen the girls that day, but she didn't come forward until 1981, which was seven years after the girl's disappearance. She said that, again, an unidentified Hispanic man was forcing the girls into his van in the parking lot of the shopping center. 
She asked, you know, what's going on here, basically, to see if anything was going on. And the man told her that it was a family dispute and she needed to just stay out of it. And then a second girl jumped out through the back doors of the van only to be chased down by another man. But for whatever reason, this person didn't report any of this to the police at the time, even though you would think this would have been significantly alarming to pretty much anyone who witnessed it. Let's fast forward another 20 years. In 2001, another witness came forward who was a security guard working that same day. He reported seeing the girls with a young security guard in the mall parking lot at around 11.30 p.m., the night of their disappearance. And from what I could find online, this would fit around the time the shops would be closing for the extended Christmas hours. The witness claimed the girls seemed relaxed, not frightened, so he didn't really think any more of it until when he reported it almost 30 years later. He claimed he didn't actually know about the girls' disappearance until 2001, which... I have to admit, I find hard to believe if there was a major incident that happened at a place I worked as a security guard, I imagine I would have heard, we all would have heard about it. There would have been some kind of police presence, some type of meeting about security. I find it hard to believe that he just didn't hear about it for 30 years. If you could all see me right now, I was rolling my eyes. There is no way he didn't know. As you said, there would have been some kind of meeting with all the security guards saying, heads up, there's been a kidnapping or whatever of three girls. It would have been all over the media, in the newspapers, on the news. He would have seen it. Now, for the record, none of these stories have been verified as accurate sightings, which I would understand. We're talking about witness sightings many years after the fact and we've talked about this before. Even after 24 hours, these kinds of sightings start becoming questionable. Now, of course, everyone was devastated by this. You've got all these closely intertwined families all losing their loved ones. By the spring of 1975, the families were obviously getting frustrated by the lack of movement in the police investigation. So they hired a private detective named John Swaim. And he called press conferences. He got into the investigators' faces about getting access to the case files. He got the case back in the headlines. According to Swaim, he received an anonymous tip that the girls' remains could be found in a bayou in Port Lavaca, which is about a five-hour's drive away from Fort Worth. And over 100 volunteers gave their time to search the area. Now, police had already looked sometime earlier there, but it was nowhere near the production Swaim organised. And then he would come out in the media every so often saying that unidentified people were calling to try to collect the reward in exchange of information about the girl's whereabouts. But nothing ever came from any of it. Now, Swaim committed suicide in 1979. That was ruled a drug overdose. And he requested all his records on the case be destroyed. So we'll never know if he found out anything when he was working on the case. But this was the start of Rachel's family kind of turning on each other. Rachel's younger brother, Rusty, he was really young when all of this happened. I think he was maybe 11. He made it his life's purpose to try and find out what happened. He later worked with a different private investigator, and together they came to this conclusion that Deborah was involved in the disappearance. 
and that Rachel was still alive, but being prevented from returning home. They believed that Renee and Julie were likely deceased. He also believed that Rachel would return to the Fort Worth area during the Christmas season every year. He never said how or why he came to this conclusion, but he was so sure that in January of 2000, he posted an open letter to Deborah stating that if she truly was not involved in this and had nothing to hide, then she should cooperate and take a polygraph. For Deborah's defense, she has always denied involvement in the disappearances, and she's also denied any romantic interest in Tommy after their original breakup. From all accounts, Deborah is devastated about the breakdown of her relationship with her brother, Rusty. And you can understand that having lost her sister and now not having a relationship with her brother. And over the years, the family had to go through the struggle of bodies being found and being linked to the girls. And you can imagine the stress of being contacted by the police and told, look, we've found body or bodies and they could be your loved ones. And then they have to wait and wait until the DNA comes through. In 1976, an oil rig worker discovered two skulls and a jaw in the area. And there were some questionable methods used in the search that followed. And there were complaints by the families that the search wasn't thorough enough, but nothing else was found at the time. And I have seen that the law enforcement has come out since then, and they said they believe that these skulls may have something to do with the girls. But from what I could find, there haven't been any further searches. During a search that happened about a week after the girls went missing, human teeth, vertebrae, two pairs of girls' pants, and a high school drama book were recovered. The remains were sent to the coroner for dental comparison, and all of that took a little over three months. Again, can you imagine what these families would have been going through at this stage? But in April of 1981, it was reported that the remains actually belonged to two girls who had disappeared in 1974 from nearby Dixon, Texas. And these were young girls, 14-year-old Georgia Greer and her friend, 12-year-old Brooks Bracewell. And they had disappeared without a trace in September of that year when they were walking to the school bus stop. Then came the reports that there were possibly 40 other girls who had gone missing or had been murdered in the area of Brazoria County and the surrounding counties. And that's crazy. 40 girls. That's a high number. And this is largely where the Fort Worth three girls came from. Also, Houston, the city mentioned in the postcard, Houston is in a bordering county. We're talking about by the mid-1970s, the bodies of 21 girls who had been reported missing in 71 and 72 had been found. In 1974 and 75, now we're talking about when these girls went missing. There were an additional 17 reported missing. The police did have a suspect who they refused to name, but he was apparently killed by police in 1972. But if we're talking about a serial killer here and only one serial killer, then this unnamed suspect can't be our guy because the girls were still going missing well into 1975, three years after this guy was killed. Now, the official law enforcement story was that there is nothing substantial to link all of these cases. But off the record, I mean, really, there there has to be something linking some of them, at least. The girls all came from the same basic area. They ranged from 12 to 21, with most of them being 14 or 15. Almost all of them looked similar physically. They had thin builds, 
long, straight, light to medium brown hair parted in the middle, and almost all of them were found in or very close to water. And then finally, the I-45 Killing Fields murders. On November 11th of 1971, Two 15-year-old girls, Debbie Ackerman and Maria Johnson, were taken from the Galveston Mall. They were taken from a mall, and they were last seen getting into a white Ford van. Does that sound familiar? Now, Galveston is not near Fort Worth. It's about a five-hour drive, and I've made nearly that drive on a road trip to Galveston, though we cut a little east through Dallas. It is a very long five hours, let me tell you, but Galveston is close to Brazoria County and close to Houston. Debbie and Maria were found two days later. Their hands and feet were bound, and they were shot twice about 10 miles or 16 kilometers from where they were last seen. And police did have a suspect for this one, a man named Ed Bell, and that's because he confessed to this and many, many more murders of young women in a letter. He was convicted and sentenced to 70 years in prison after he shot a man in the face. He was eligible for parole in January of 2013, but that was denied. I would say that has something to do with his continued insistence that he's killed other people. He hasn't been charged with any of the cases he's confessed to. Apparently what he wrote was such that prosecutors didn't feel it was strong enough to charge him. I mean, he could very well just be yanking their chain, but then again, he actually could be the killer. I won't go any more into our friend Ed because... He's an intriguing, not very nice guy, and we might just make an episode on him one day. And then the families went through the normal parade of prank phone calls and psychics coming forward, claiming to know where the girls were buried. But again, as it is with psychics, nothing came of that. So what happened? I think we can rule out runaway straight away, if only because Julie was so young, and we're talking about a couple of days before Christmas. I can't see her wanting to go anywhere. Renee was excited about her relationship and the massive step forward that was taking. And if for any reason Rachel wanted to run away, why would she take a nine-year-old child along with her that day? Especially since Rachel went around and asked everyone, including her mother, to come along on the shopping trip as well. It doesn't make sense that she ran away. The only reason I came up with as to why they may have taken Julie is that if she told them that something may have been happening at home and they wanted to protect her. But it sounds like her home life was just fine before she went missing. I really think asking everyone around them to go with them shopping rules out the runaway theory right away, regardless of what that letter said. I mean, you could say that that was just a play to make it look like that they weren't going to run away, but then what would have happened if her mum said, you know what, I will come. And I can't see Renee running away if that meant missing that night's Christmas party and the chance to show off her promise ring and share her happy news. Even if her pre-engagement to Terry was intended to be a secret because of their age, She must have been eager to tell at least a few close friends. And why would she miss a party with her new fiancé? The idea that all three of these girls wanted to run away at the same time just doesn't make sense. They wouldn't have gone shopping and bought things and left them in the car. They wouldn't have picked up layaway presents. They would have just left. I mean, none of the runaway theory makes sense. And I think it's unfortunate that time was spent considering them runaways. And even if Renee and Rachel decided they wanted to go away for a week and sort of kick up their heels in Houston, 
I can't see them wanting to take Julie and then having to be responsible for her and feed her and the like. Right. It doesn't make sense. Another theory that is mentioned on online forums and the like is that maybe something happened accidentally with Julie that day and the other girls panicked and ran away. Perhaps they were experimenting with drugs in the van that they were seen in and Julie had a bad reaction. But I find it hard to believe that Rachel and Rodney would never, never make contact with their families all these years and as these years have gone on. Also, for this to happen, we're looking at two separate incidents happening as opposed to one, with no real witnesses seeing the other girls after these years and no information surfacing as to either, which I find pretty unlikely, especially considering that we're talking about this happening in daytime hours during such a busy time with so many people out and about with their last minute Christmas shopping and the like. And I know we're talking about the 1970s here, but I couldn't find any evidence or any reports that Renee and Rachel did experiment with drugs. There were many more recent posts from someone who claimed to have contacts in both law enforcement on this case and with Rusty, and they described what they understood to be the most likely scenario. This theory identified a man named Mike Debar de Laban as responsible for the girl's disappearance. And I'm not going to say his name again. I'm sorry, guys. Just call him Mike. We're just going to call him Mike, guys. Uh, This is the best we can do. As to who Mike was, he was one of those all-around great guys. He was convicted kidnapper, rapist, counterfeiter, and suspected serial killer who was in the habit of passing counterfeit bills in shopping centers. After his arrest for counterfeiting is when they discovered they had committed so many more serious crimes than that. He was known to be operating around Texas at the time of the girl's disappearance, and he was also known to impersonate security guards and other positions of authority. One factor that might lean towards this Mike theory is the lack of information in later years of any sightings of the girls. If it was someone they knew, that means it was someone local, and, you know, people talk There has been a lot of reward money offered over the years for information on this case. To contrast this, Mike drifted. He went around committing his crimes in various locations, and he was known to be notoriously tight-lipped and secretive. When he was finally imprisoned, he was questioned extensively on some possible rape and murder cases that happened in areas he was known to frequent. They even had a bunch of photos found after his arrest, and the FBI profilers reported in his case file that he never gave anything away of himself, not even in unguarded moments, and he never bragged about any of his exploits. The official line from the police after all these years is that the girls left the mall willingly with someone they trusted, and they were later harmed. Honestly, I waver back and forth between this idea and the Mike one, Because I think we can agree that whatever happened to the girls, it would mean that they left them all either willingly or at least reasonably quiet anyway. I mean, whether we are talking about one perpetrator or multiple, you would think that it would still be difficult to abduct three people without anyone noticing. And as you said, Charlie, especially since we are talking about a popular busy shopping centre at Christmas time. So either the girls left willingly with someone they knew or felt comfortable leaving with, And, you know, going back to the Mike theory, 
it's possible that maybe someone was impersonating a security guard or maybe a policeman or maybe more along those lines, maybe the abductor was that intimidating enough that they didn't want to make a huge scene. Again, maybe because they were impersonating a security guard or a policeman and they had a gun. It would be very difficult to kidnap and subdue three people in a busy shopping center. So I do think that either they were lured away or they there was a gun involved possibly more than one person involved as well but i don't i don't see someone just grabbing them as was described in a witness statement there's just so many ways this could have went down maybe the kidnapper was waiting near their car and saw them get in the car he could have done anything to make them go with him as i said he could have been a security guard or or a police officer and he told them that they were caught shoplifting and they had to come with him He could have tinkered with their car. He could have taken off the distributor cap or maybe removed the cables from the battery. That would have made the car disabled, but then the kidnapper just happens to be there at the right time to help them. He pulls up in his car and offers to help. I can see both these scenarios, the girls getting into someone's car for a drive, and then later the kidnapper comes back and makes a quick fix to the car so no one knows what happened. Now, lastly, another thing I've wondered about is if the girls could have been taken to another country and sold into some kind of sex slavery there and then been brainwashed so badly that they don't know who they are and they're convinced the identity they were given is real. It's only something like a six or seven hour drive from Fort Worth to Mexico. They could have been taken there or they could have been given fake passports and sent on a plane or a boat literally anywhere in the world. And I hate to say this, but I was thinking about their ages and trafficking does make sense in some ways. We have a nine-year-old, a 14-year-old and a 17-year-old, and that pretty much covers the entire age spectrum. We have a pre-pubescent, a girl currently just gone through puberty, and then a girl who's nearly an adult. It sounds disgusting, but there's something for everyone in that group. I can see why them as a group were targeted. I think if they... If they were targeted as a group, then something like sex trafficking makes the most sense. If one of them was being targeted, like let's say Rachel is the main target, then then I wonder if there if it was a stalker or someone maybe not known to her but who knew who she was or a predator who was out and following her. The something that makes me keep on going to sex trafficking is that Texas has one of the highest statistics for human and sex trafficking in the United States, mainly because of its proximity to the Mexican border. I read that a third of all tips to the National Trafficking Hotline come from Texas. I mean, if you Google sex trafficking in Texas, you can see it is a legitimate concern for that area. I just have a hard time getting my head around what the hell happened to them. One person is hard enough to dispose of, but we're looking at three people here. I know I'm stating the obvious, but I imagine hiding three bodies would be much more difficult. And if they were shot or stabbed, where is the evidence? There has to be blood somewhere or on something, but there is literally nothing. I don't find the witnesses credible, so I'm just going to cross that out. I find it really surprising that there is such a lack of evidence. There doesn't appear to be have been any struggle in the car. There doesn't appear to be anything wrong 
at the mall. They didn't have a run-in that people noticed. This was a high-traffic area being right before Christmas at a mall. Just the sheer lack of evidence is really surprising in this case, and that nothing's been found. And with the letter being sent, that nothing came of that. Even that unfortunate stamp where we can't, we don't know if it was supposed to be a accidentally a three if it was in the wrong spot or if it was actually an eight. It seems like this case will only be solved if someone finds them. And if they find them, it will likely be accidental. I can't see them finding them now. I mean, what are we talking about? 40 something years. But, you know, stranger things have happened. There've been a lot of cold cases solved in the last 12 months. So for the family's sake, I hope something does come up. I hope some answers come up and I hope whatever those answers are help heal some of the fractured families in this case. And that's also one of the saddest things. We've got a brother and sister who are barely on speaking terms. I imagine it must be very difficult to believe your sister harmed your other sister, and it must also be very difficult knowing your brother thinks that about you. There's a lot of sadness in this case and no really solid answers, and that's really, really tragic. And that's another thing that I also find sad is in this case, there is very little facts available, which I find really strange. There are only clips and snips here and there, and most places just provide the same basic information. Okay, so housekeeping time. Firstly, if you're listening on iTunes or your app allows you to, please rate, review and subscribe. Not only do you have the satisfaction of making us smile with your lovely reviews, but you help bring more people to the podcast. Thank you to the following people for their five-star reviews. DCM68, Go Blue Mem, Posse JD, and Airy New Ra. I'm sorry if I pronounced that wrong. And then if you can, we have a Patreon for an ongoing monthly donation and a PayPal for a one-off donation. All links are on our website, insightpod.com. We have rewards from as little as a dollar a month. Thank you to our amazing patrons this month. And that goes to Nicole, Stacey R, Dawn H and Leonie. If you like a chat, we are on Facebook. There is a page and also a private discussion group where there's a lot of animal posts lately, which is give me the warm and fuzzies. It's a good break from all the murder and the missing we are on Twitter at InsightfulPod, Instagram at InsightPod, and the emails InsightfulPod at gmail.com. And finally, we'll both be at Indy on the weekend of CrimeCon, June 9 to 11. We won't have any organised meetups ourselves, but if you are at the convention or in the area, make sure you are in our Facebook group to find out where you can come say hello to us. And that is it for this week. So we will either see you at our meetups next weekend or see you back here next Monday. 